Afternoon. You've got Living Writers. I'm T. Hetzel, and today I'm so happy to have here in the studio Jamal May. Jamal, hey, welcome. So <laughs> well, good to be here. Thank you for having me. Um, it's it's great to see you. When you guys walked in, I was like, yes, there it is. Jamal's here. Um, and we started out with Portis Head. Yeah, classic. Um, <laughs> can you tell us a little bit about your connection to Portis Head? Um, Portis Head, I think part of my like love for him is that I found Portis Head right at this point in my life where I was kind of like just switching paths and it was and I started listening to like a w- really wide range of music, stuff that I hadn't considered before. I kind of just opened up and it was one of the first things that somebody put me up on 
in that really big transitional period for me. So it kind of has this like, as soon as I hear it, it just sounds like my history. And then as I change and grow, the music takes on different meanings. And so it uh, has this kind of really three-dimensional, like really far back, like deep, deep, deep memory kind of connect for me. And how old were you when you first, because I feel like the album may have come out like, when it was, when I got I found out like, I found out about it late. Where's your bio? So, it, it, yeah, when I found out about it, it was already uh, um already old news. Like they already had two albums out, and people were already waiting like waiting that long gap between the second and third. Uh, so this was I think I was eighteen. Oh, okay. And so this was like around like two thousand. It was like right. It was funny. It was right at the turn of the millennium. Like just everything just shifted for me. It sounds like a. What, did it shift with your writing too, Jamal? I wasn't writing back then. Uh, were yeah. you do were you doing slam poems then or not? I wasn't not? doing anything. In two thousand, um, I wasn't a poet. I wasn't a musician. I wasn't a, anything. I was, um, I was just starting to like think about it basically. Um, I, and you were in high school, and so I was graduating high school in the year two thousand when I graduated high school. And then that fall, that, that year, I also started working at a runaway shelter, and that's where I kind of started like growing as a person because I was given all this responsibility and I was like a knucklehead. So like I suddenly like kind of saw like um this fun- like something I, I was good at. I was good at um I started to understand people better. I always like felt isolated and weird and kind of far away from like society and culture and I was um really quiet kid and um, all of a sudden I was starting to kind of like find ways to connect to people and then writing came shortly after that that was like a, a next logical step and in between there was uh, music production I really got interested in music production and then somehow that ended up leading to wanting to write music and write songs and then lead and my twin sister like really thought I'd be a good poet and she really pushed for it and I was like you should try you should give it a shot and eventually convinced me to try it out and so all of that happened between like 2000 and 2004 basically and it's and that portis had music actually it is it's evocative isn't it because it yeah. feels like you're moving in this um different space yeah like maybe definitely. trying to connect but it's or yeah definitely there's a um this space thing of space like the spatial aspects of Porter's head um are really uh, phenomenal because as a as a somebody who's not mix engineer um mixing as an audio engineer um i can listen to the tracks and hear things that um like where I'm, i would listen to him be like how did they do that it used to baffle me and now i'm at a point of development where i can actually hear the techniques that are at play and the way they play with the space with reverbs and like kind of create a sense of space and, um with all the instruments and like i used to wonder how everything gelled together and a big part of it is like how they shape the space of the um the rooms with their reverbs and things like that so and once you yeah. know these some of these mysteries like it doesn't sound like it diminishes what the song means or how no, it, not right? at all it's like yeah. um it's it's like a composer like a composer can listen to a piece and know what all notes are happening but right. it doesn't change the way they listen to music they can listen to it you just gain m- multiple ways to listen you can just put it on and lay back and just let it wash over you or you can put it on and kind of pick it apart and and also there's a beautiful thing that happens when that's happening simultaneously where you're being moved by the music and you know the technical thing that is moving you at the same time like you know that so it's intellectual as well as emotional and all like the fusion between those and i think that's where the magic of art is like when, when you get that merger that kind of 
Vesca Pisces that overlap on the Venn diagram of um, where you can simultaneously get your left brain and right brain kind of doing a little dance together <laughs> before just before they realize that they're kind of just parts of the same thing because you don't really have a, two separate brains you have one mind you know and so there's a left right brain kind of dance that art can make you do where you're you're always kind of thinking intellectually and emotionally while engaging um, a, a well made piece of art. That's beautiful. Thank you. So when, what about the writing part with the poems? Because um, when I was researching about you, Jamal, um, you said that there, you know, you kind of almost did it like an old-fashioned way. I love that you were saying something about like, um, like poem poets have always looked to mentors and different and and poems yeah. that they love, and that's sort of at, at the core. That's how you connected in. Is it? I guess I should ask you since you're here. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, that's def- that definitely was my aunt. Um, I had a great mentor named Vivi Francis, and she really friend of the show. Oh, that's what's up. <laughs> and she she really believes in the mentorship model of teaching. She's a phenomenal teacher, and um, it really fit the way I, I thought. Like you know, just kind of just let me sit at the foot of the master. You know, I'm not I'm not the kind of student that kind of wants the teacher to acknowledge what I already know. I'm already past that. You know, like mm-hmm. it's like I, what I know is kind of use- <laughs> useless to me in some in a classroom situation. What I don't know is where the magic is. So I really wanted a mentor that could really point the direction out you know look over here look over here did you see that did you know about this and um and that's a bit that became a big part of my teach my own teaching philosophy and the way i grew as an artist by always kind of looking like even people that don't know they're my mentors are my mentors like uh, matthew oldsman um vivi's husband he's he's been a mentor of mine he doesn't know that he's been mentoring me he's been mentoring me for years you know like everything from you know where i submitted my poems to to like like me puzzling over his control of tone is a big part of what how much of how I can, I'm able to control tone of my work. I, I like analyze the like the hell out of his poems and looking for like how can he create this really humorous, light, fantastic tone and then turn that towards this really um, poignant moment and just breaking his poems down mentored me. That so mentorship became not just like the literal sitting in front of a mentor, but also just how I think about learning. It's like where to kind of find the pieces, where to kind of find the information. Who's um, As my, uh, my partner, Sophia had this funny thing where she said, she said, I'm not competitive. She's like, I'm not, uh, what did she say? Um, oh, she said, I steal from everyone. You should steal from me. Uh, I'm not competitive. I'm more just like, who has the sugar? <laughs> I think that's good advice. Yeah, I think yeah. it's perfect advice. Thanks, Tarpia. You know, like, <laughs> instead of being caught up in like, you know, like this is mine and this is like, this is my style and this is my voice. It's just more like, you know, I'm trying to write a poem like this. Who can do that? What are the tools they use? Okay, how do they use their syntax? What's the kind of collection of diction that's there? And you start seeing that stuff and it becomes more intuitive. And back, and back to your question about, you know, that does that analyzing music change that same thing with poetry like knowing these ins and outs doesn't change how i can read a poem i can read a poem and just let the words wash over me or i have this other experience i can do where i know the reason i had that lift in the third in the penultimate stanza is because the rhyme scheme fell apart and i felt that music you know like knowing that kind of adds that extra dimension to it I love that. I, I feel like um, it's something about knowing how you're building a poem. Yeah, right? definitely. And, and, and the poem and, is a made thing, you know. Yes. Like, look when you look at a sculpture, you think about that chisel, you know. You think yeah. about that sandpaper, and I like that with poems too. You know, it almost looks easy when it's just sitting there, but you can step back and say, "Oh, like look how these those are sculpted." Uh, like, and you can imagine what had to be cut out of that poem to get that compressed, um, vibrating like um, form at the end. 
like what's between the two brains, the, right. the haves, yeah, you can, the f- mind. You can feel the dance. You can't <laughs> yeah. feel the physical thing, but you can feel the space between the dance, you know? It yeah. seems to me also, Jamal, that um, Inside Out was maybe a place because um, I know Matthew was there. Yeah, definitely. Um, I don't know if Fivey was there. Fivey's done stuff with Inside Out, yeah. Like, and Francine. Uh, and Francine was at Inside Out. Like, uh, like there's kind of like a nice little crew of Detroit poets. Even um, Tarfia is a new new Detroiter, oh. and she's worked with Inside Out. Um, she was at the Detroit School of the Arts um, for, a, um, I think, a, couple, a semester. Um, so... Inside Out is kind of one of those home bases, you know. It that's, is. That's where you know Terry your Black are. Yeah. Right, Robert Fanning, Peter Marcus, um, Nandi Comer. Yes, you know um, how's Nandi? <laughs> Nandi's great. Con Davison, um, who had a book come out this year. Uh, like you know, it's been it's, it's like a cool fam that's kind of always been there, and you and when you're away, you can almost still feel that unity. How do you? How did you get involved with Inside Out? Because it's it's a and. Could you tell us about your role in it? Because then, yeah. so for people who don't, listeners so who don't know. My first connect with Inside Out started with Matthew Oldsman. Back to Matt. He brought me into his classroom on his first day. He's basically, his plan was to like have me come in, impress them, kind of make them rethink what a poem is yeah. to start off. And then he would teach from there. And, uh, and it went really well. So the next time he um, brought me out, um, he let me run, um, run, run the workshop, kind of do a writing prompt and stuff like that. And like, and he um, paid me to come out. And it was really cool. Like, I, and I was like, oh, snap. I think I like teaching. Yeah. You know? <laughs> And you're a working writer. Yeah, right? it, was, it was really <laughs> exciting, you know. And um, and then so from there, I started doing um, Inside Out Citywide Poets. That um, no, before I did Citywide Poets, actually, I coached the Citywide Poets Slam team um, that went to um, Georgetown to compete in the Brave New Voices National Youth Poetry Slam. And so after that, that after that summer, uh, following fall, I had I started teaching in Citywide Poets as well. And um, and that was the first the first thing I did. Um, and I, when I started at Citywide Poets, I also, after that same fall, I started doing a in the school writer's residency as well. And which school did you work? Um, at that time, I was doing Clippard Academy and Western High School. And I stayed at Clippard for the, like all the years that I was doing uh, writer residency at Inside Out. So it was really cool because oh, I got to line. watch all the kids, kids. You saw them grow up. Yeah. And they added a seventh grade. I had a sixth grade since the first time I went. And they added a seventh grade class because it was going so well with the sixth graders. And it was kind of an easy sell because they looked at the numbers and the students I worked with were scoring higher in vocabulary. Than the students I didn't, so that was kind of kind of worked the pitch. But the, they had great English teachers, and the seventh grade English teacher kind of went to the sixth grade teacher and was like, "Okay, there's this thing. There's something weird happening." She's like, so "This percentage of students I'm getting <laughs> when it's time to write, they get excited. They write all over the back of the page. They just kind of go on and on." She's like, "Then the rest of them is still kind of like pulling teeth. Like, what's going on?" And she was like, "Oh, we have a poet come in, you know, and that and so that kind of got around. And so we, they added a seventh grade class, so I got to see." Some of the students in sixth and seventh grade, and kind of watched them um, mature and watch what poetry gave different students. Um, you know, there were students that I watched poetry gave them like something to kind of look forward to at school. You know, and kind of redefine. I watched it redefine what an English class was to a student. There was a student nearly failing his English class who was like one of the best writer. He was better than my high school student. He was the best writer I, I had met, and and everybody didn't see that connection. So inside, I was just. It opened it. Opened everything for me. It was like, it was a like big part of my my own learning as a writer. Let's take a short break, and when we come back, okay. more conversation today with Jamal Hay May. I'm T Hetzel. You've got living writers. We've got the Liz behind the glass. We'll be right back.
just tuning in. I'm glad you did. You've got Living Writers. I'm T. Hetzel today. Jamal May is here. Um, We were just hearing a little bit of Radiohead. Um, uh, Jamal, you you were, (laughs) do you mind, um, we we were talking a little bit off air about um, music that's in your head right now and uh, some projects that you're working on, maybe with audio projects. Um, um, yeah, so I've been kind of like dabbling um, with some music stuff again. I was able to, I used to have a project studio where I do production stuff and some freelance like engineering. And um, I was able to replace, like like get like a bunch of new updated equipment recently because, um, because of Atlanta Foundation um, grant. Um, so I've been kind of like shaping, and people have been asking me like when I, when I talk about music, like oh, what's the sound like? And I've been, there's so many kind of genres of music that I'm into, and so many different things I'm in the process of learning. Like that, it's been kind of this crazy hodgepodge, but it's finally been starting to kind of narrow down into a couple different sounds. And um, the best way I was able to describe it to a group of students, what I was working on right now was, um, I said basically if. Radiohead had gotten into a fight with Portishead and Jack White summoned Jimi Hendrix back from the dead to break it up. That's pretty much like kind of the best way I could summarize this hodgepodge of tones because it's kind of got like this darker melodic kind of stuff. And, um, and the, something, some razor edge. Like yeah, some there's rrr. an edge to it. Um, um, I got, a, I got a, a, a Moog synthesizer and it just has such like biting sounds and these and I got these Moog guitar pedals. and So I'm finally starting to like come around to a sound. I, like, I really get in with the Wawa like um like Hendrix, but 
um, with some kind of similar beat patterning that's more like a Jack White kind of thing. So all of this stuff's kind of splashing together and it's just like starting to shape into a sound that's like just really fun to play with. And cool to not have to, it's not part of my career so I could just make it. Like yeah. so much of the stuff I make is part of like how I make a living. So to be able to make music and not have to think about it anymore, it's been really fun. And you never know. Right? Yeah. Because when you're making things, you're making yeah, them. Yeah. Right? That, that so used to be what have, I did, you know? Right. I used to make a, a part of my, well, how I made a living as an artist was I would sell CDs out of my backpack. <laughs> <So> <laughs> like, I recorded one project uh, called Binary Soul, like, like a, over a decade ago. And um, I was. Could we find it on YouTube? Or do, I you, hope do, not. do you have a CD? Because <laughs> we could play uh, it. <laughs> oh, really? Really? Good. I don't know. Actually, if only we, we could have had some. Actually, I went back and listened to it. Um, my partner, Tarfia, made me listen to um, like the project again. And I was expecting to be like oh my god but when i listened to it Holds i was up. better than i thought because some of the choices i made that were kind of weird back then are more common now like some of the like um the weird bass heavy um stripped down stuff that kanye is doing was like kind of it was weirder it. then so when i went back listen to it, it actually sounded like to me better than yeah. it did to me back well because it was kind of more a left field. It was a little bit more left field before, and now it's like there's there's so much mixing between genres now that right. every everything is kind of eclectic. Um, well, and thank goodness, right? Yeah. yeah. But maybe Kanye heard it. Is that what you're no, saying, Jamal? No, 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 saying no, no, no. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, all twelve people that heard it. No. <laughs> I heard you say "made a living," so there was some before. You know what? Before we go, um, I'd love if you read uh, a poem. Uh, uh, but first, I'll just uh, let me read your your bio here and then um okay jamal may is the author of hum alice james books 2013 and the big book of exit strategies alice james books 2016 hum received several honors including a lannan foundation grant and american library association's notable book award other honors include a spirit of detroit award the wood prize from poetry and a fellowship with the civitella renere foundation in italy his poetry explores the spaces between opposites to render a sonically rich argument for the interconnectivity of people as well as the worlds they inhabit. From Hamtramck and Detroit, he co-directs Organic Weapons Arts with Tarfia Fazula. All right. So there's the most recent bio. We can fill in more pieces of the story, like we have been doing. But th- we heard Radiohead at the break, Jamal, yeah. and that was also... There's yeah, a there's reason, a Radiohead right? <laughs> song that um, I stole the title from. Um, the song title is "How to Disappear Completely." So and this is like what Tarfio was saying as well, right? Yeah, like to steal, yeah, or, or so. Okay. Um, so this poem is um, called "How to Disappear Completely," and it's from Hum. You are quarter ghosts on your mother's side. Your heart is a flayed peach in a bone box. Your hair comes away in clumps like cheap fabric wet. A reflecting pool gathers around your altar of plywood subflooring and split wooden slats. You are ragdoll prone, contort, angle and arc, rot. Here you are, a greening abdomen, slipping skin, flesh fly, carrying beetles. Here, where bullets found their shelter, where size found their function, breath lost its place on the page, where the page was torn out of every book before chapters close. This is slippage. This is a shroud of neglect pulled over the body. This is your chance to escape. Little Wraith, 
Bend light around your skin until it colors you clear. Disappear like silica in a kiln. Become glass and glass beads. Become the staggered whir of an exhaust fan. A presence only noticed when gone. Become origami. Fold yourself smaller than ever before. Become more. Let become less, more in some ways, but less in the way of famine is less. We will forgive you for not being satisfied with fitting in our hands. We will forgive you for dying to be a bird diminutive enough to fit in a mouth without being crushed. Thanks, Jamal. Thank you. I love that one. I'd probably say that about all of them, actually. Um, so um, there's these moments where um, I love the bigness of what happens. For example, with the famine, how you, that idea is being um, turned. Yeah. And you can feel it happening. Like you're guiding, I guess, your listener or reader to suddenly feel it. It yeah. makes you showing us a little bit beforehand, the more and the less. and the, yeah. But then it's like... And that's what I like about poems is how they can um, push and pull you because you have to follow the syntax. You have to follow the language and it, um, it can argue for that kind of those weird spaces between because so much of our discourse, I think that I'm obsessed with this as a writer and as an artist in general. So much of our discourse is kind of this black and white. You're with me you're against me. Like mm -hmm. as soon as we hear something, we mean go, do I agree with that or don't agree with that? And that's pretty much where we limit our response. Like I agree with you. I don't agree with you. Mm -hmm. um, but there's a third thing, you know, yeah. <laughs> which is to think about it, you know, and, and check that against what you already know and what you hope for and what's possible and kind of and learn and so with a poem it's like you don't like with that movement you're talking about you have to see something large as small and cause, and work your way through it and consider that like you don't have a choice if you read the line your brain does it for you <laughs> it's like because the music and the language turns your brain it activates that part of your brain and it goes wait how can a, a something large be small and you get answers if you say do I agree or not agree you get one or two one of two answers if you say how is this possible your brain will come up with possible it comes up with a ton of answers and so with poems I try to make shift people's brains to ask questions instead of kind of shut down or light up with yes or no answers yeah and there is this dynamic this movement that's happening yeah. within all of them and you also you said at some point I think to in a Kenyan review interview yeah I think that it was you're you're sort of an old-fashioned poet because you want to move people yeah, yeah. It's the, it's, um, the notion that you can actually affect people, I noticed, and actually maybe less so now. Like when I said that, you know, I felt like there was kind of this pressure to um, kind of be kind of hands off with like things that matter, <laughs> you know? Yeah, it's almost as if you can't make a pronouncement. You can't say anything big right. or so. Yeah. But and, you do. And the assumption is that you have to either be didactic or that, or you can't say anything. And I feel like there's a way we can actually have a conversation. Like, I don't have to be an authority on anything, and I also don't have to shy away from subject matter or issues that are relevant or rising up. And so I think it's, I want people to feel something, even if that's intellectual. It doesn't always have to be an emotional thing. Like, some people like poems just for an intellectual kind of mind puzzle game kind of thing that happens with poetry, too. And I think that's valid too that's still movement whatever well, what, that movement is well what you were the poem that you just read is both yeah because that's one of the more i feel like that's kind of one of the more esoteric kind of structured poems i well, not structured but 
Th- that poem was one of the weirder ones in the book. And, and I, a tip of the hat to Radiohead. Yeah, yeah, and I just kept like I kept running it past people for a long for years, you know, because I kept being like, "Y'all sure?" Like this, like because I kept waiting for somebody to be like, "I don't know," but now I actually understand the poem better than I did back even when I f- published it in the book because I can see like that people it does that work that I always hoped it would do of like not asking you to stand on a firm ground by letting the reader kind of sift through it as the poem kind of sifts through all this different language and so it kind of can get away with because it tonally evokes something it can get away with being a little bit more opaque you know and and just kind of generally strange like there's not a lot of easy footing in the poem but i think the music and the tone kind of carries you through it and and um and and in that way i think you can go back to the poem and find more things more about it after our initial read it's not you're not done with it after you hear it once or read it once you kind of have to go back through it but if you're going to always say if you're going to send somebody back through something there should be more there for them when they get there they they shouldn't just go through and like kind of just get lost all over again You know, and it it occurs to me like this idea of trusting the language or being led by language when you were talking about your process, Jamal, and and what you can see, like the possibilities that you can do as you're crafting or shaping the language, right? Right. Um, Then it makes sense that if that's what you're being led by language or so, right, that then years on, you can see this poem and actually feel it or see it in a different way. Yeah, definitely. Uh, and that happens in the editing process. I put poems away for a long time and then go back to them and look to be surprised. I look for n- new things. I look, And so I kind of add layers that I forget about even <laughs> right. over time. I really make sure I pick every single word for a purpose and, if possible, a dual purpose. And you got a bird in it, and 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 the image I think started with like not having to be held in the hand, which is which is so I think emotional, like like yeah. saying to someone you don't you don't have to fit in someone's hand to be held, and then suddenly there's a, a bird later that's also then going into the mouth without being crushed. Right, which is again playing with size and space, like in that kind of push pull way. Yeah, and and flight. Maybe. Yeah. Um, let's. Well, we'll take a short break. We'll come back. Maybe we'll talk more about birds because okay, cool. you are a man who is not afraid of birds. Not at all. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Today on Living Writers, Jamal May is here. I'm T Hetzel. We'll be right back. We must be in love. We must be in love. One life, one love, one fight, one struggle, one 
Welcome back. You've got Living Writers. I'm T. Hetzel. Today on the program, Jamal May is here. Um, His book, Hum, uh, out with Alice James Books in 2013. And we've got another book to come in the spring, um, The Big Book of Exit Strategies. Yep, that's it. It's a nice title. Thank you. I kind of went the opposite direction with it. Like, like home is like this one word title. <laughs> right. So from home to the big book of exit strategies. Um, I like pivoting. Like, um, whatever I do before, I kind of look at it from a different angle next time. So I think that's why I ended up with such a long title, this go around. Even if it's like subconscious, yeah. you're like, I can see what you're doing, Jamal. Yeah, <laughs> that's that's what I always do is like, I go back and look and find, figure my brain out. I'm like, wait, why did you do that? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and when you say it, it sounds like a really good thing. Like it's a good thing to do, you know. You don't need to be afraid of your brain. You can figure it out, you yeah. know. Um, so before the break, we were talking about um, birds, um, I, I guess. I, I brought it up. Um, and you've... Many, many of your poems have have a bird as um, I don't know whether it has been part of the the origin, like the the thing that helped, like was like a, a driving force in the poem to right. begin with, and then maybe like the focal point, like that, that trope that carries through the poem. Yeah, 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 and even if the bird sort of transforms or takes a different sort of role as the poem is growing, I don't know. But there's um, uh, like sky now black with birds. Yeah, and um, and your poem for Detroit as well. Yeah, um, there are birds here. Um, uh, the funny thing about the birds, um, and this goes back to something that's interesting to me, is the idea of like thinking about how memory works when you're creating something. Um, like I feel like I've changed the way people look at hum like retroactively by writing a poem specifically about birds, like that came out after hum. Because one of the funny things was that like I noticed that people rarely talked about the birds in the book. Like, when I, it wasn't until I had all the poems together and was editing and shaping it. I was like, okay, there's like a bird trope that runs through the book. And then when I was, like, and I noticed when the book came out, everyone would talk about machines or concrete and gravel and things, but there were more birds in the book than pretty much any other, like, object. Just or about. even the cars. Or... Right, there were more birds than cars even, you know? Uh, and so I was like, I was like, yo, there's birds too. And, was, <laughs> and I was doing the thing, this thing called the grind where we had, like, you have a group and you have to turn a poem in every day, you know, by midnight. And so, so, so a lot of like just random ideas or jokes would become poems because you needed something, right. you know. So I was like, "Yo, there's birds here too." And so I just put that at the top of a page, and um, and I finally was able to write a poem for Detroit, which I hadn't really done. Hum is dedicated to the interior lives of Detroiters, but I hadn't really written a poem specifically like, "Okay, I want to write for a poem for Detroit." And uh, what is what is that like? Um, it was it was it happened when I could, like, cause it's one of those things where when something is 
really important, that's kind of easier thing to screw up <laughs> because yeah. you know do it's harder to do the due diligence. So I'll hold those ideas longer. Like uh, I actually avoided writing about Detroit for a while, and it wasn't until I was looking at Hum as a manuscript that I wrote like together the poems collectively felt like Detroit to me. And so then I played that up after the fact. I was actually avoiding <laughs> writing about the city. I wanted to write about people and and interactions and human lives. And then I was like, oh wait, all these humans are Detroiters after the fact. And so from there, you know, a miscellaneous body of water becomes the Detroit River, you know, and you start to kind of like shape that. Like, and I think it was good because it let me do it in a way that didn't rely heavily on illusion, you know, like it wasn't a lot of like, remember this corner store. And, you know, if you know that bodega, then maybe that'd be a really cool reference for you. But if you haven't been to that exact same corner store, then it's just some corner store. So I, I was able to kind of avoid on that and, and in a way try to write something for everyone but from the lens of Detroit because I really do try to write for a broad um, a broad group of people and like the, like you were saying Jamal the interior yeah. of people like the interior, the interior of lives. the city and I can't help but like reflect that like the way that interior plays out in, the, in these bigger ways like it's easy to look at and this is one thing I argue for in my work period is the interconnectivity between the small and the large so we look at like our, our interactions with each other as separate from like you know politics and social concerns, but um, like, are, but people vote emotionally. People uh, go, move towards causes emotionally. People donate emotionally. It always so, and that and your emotional state depends on who's around you, or how you're interacting with them. So, being an actual decent human in your day to day life is like the most the most impacting thing you could do. Every single person you hit is gonna impact the next few people they hit. And so, um, we get really. I think it's easy to get caught up in. You know, I'm kind of getting on a tangent here, but like, you know, like kind of yelling at each other on social media. And then all the people that agree with you go like, yeah, you told them. And then all the people that don't agree with you say like they block you and say to hell with them. And then right. you, and then I don't know. I think it can alert people to some things. But really, what actually changes people is what happens on your block. Like, isn't it, isn't it funny mm-hmm. that people who know people have friends in a particular group don't aren't prejudiced against that group right. as much? Like, mm-hmm. like if you have gay friends, you're not and like an asshole to gay people. <laughs> like, right. like, I don't think it's coincidental, mm-hmm. you know. Um, so. The, so the work I'm, I, I do with the poems, there necessarily becomes this connective tissue between interactions of interior lives and individual people work uh, interacting with each other, and then these kind of big social concerns like gun violence and um, police brutality and um, just whatever the big issues are. They all funnel down to our actual lives, our actual people living on your street, you know, <laughs> that are affected by policies and. Um, choices. They're not just like, or even you as you walk or even, by, or even you, or, right? Or, or, it's not just these headlines that you react to as your internet self. You know, um, we go on to. I, I, I watch people that think of themselves as you know progressive, like people, just be awful to like working class people just doing their job. You know, and they don't see the connection. Like they're like they're they're right on the issues on their their Twitter page. They put the right picture up on their right. Facebook profile when an event happens, but in their actual lives, they're just kind of like mindless. And they're to me, they're just as dangerous as anybody else. Mindlessness, so. yeah, mindlessness yeah. is the, the thing. And so my poetry is like very much trying to draw that connective tissue between all our lives and these big and macro and micro issues, um, and just give people a place where they can move through that, whether it be for something that like gives them a rise, gives them some kind of comfort or something that can make them think about the world ask differently. Questions. Or ask some questions. Or be with the questions instead right. of saying yes and no, right. I agree, I don't right. agree. Because if you ask questions, we'll always, if you start asking questions, you'll always get a little bit farther. Like no matter what. There's always a layer underneath the thing and like, like how generous and um, helpful you are as a person is directly dependent on how many layers deep you're willing to go on, on any issue. 
Um, which, um, back to what you're saying about birds, that's the poem. There are birds there. That poem is pretty much just the poem version of wanting people to ask that, to ask questions, do that third thing. Um, so I, um, it's cool if I recite it. Please. Like, okay, cool. Um, there are birds here for Detroit. There are birds here. There are so many birds here is what I was trying to say when they said the birds are metaphors for what is trapped between fences and buildings. No, the birds are here to root around for bread. The girl's hands tear and toss like confetti. No, I don't mean the bread is torn like cotton. I said confetti. And no, not the confetti a tank can make out of a building. I mean... The confetti the boy can't stop smiling about. And no, his smile is not much like a skeleton at all. And no, his neighborhood is not like a war zone. I am trying to say that their neighborhood is as tattered and feathered as anything else, as shadow pierced by sun and light parted by shadow dance as anything else. But they won't stop saying how lovely the ruins, how ruined the lovely children must be in your birdless city. Thanks, Jamal. Thanks I feel for like listening. that's I feel like that yeah that that is I feel like that's an important poem to be in the world and to actually have um so you have that poem that you can recite so it's something like so to see you do it also is is quite um lovely so thank you um like looking inside to be in the language also yeah. as you're saying it um and that's how i managed to even get up in front of people is that like you know i had like the social anxiety thing and i'm crowds were my biggest fear that's actually weirdly how i got into it was that i challenged myself to get up in front of an audience because um i can't this i kept saying that you can only grow by doing what you can't do you right. like if you only do things you know how to do you only get a little better at what you already know and i had to challenge myself on that i was like but you don't want to you can't get up in front of people you can't do audiences you can't share with your thoughts and so i kind of dragged myself into it um because of that um so to get up in front of people like the way i worked it out early was i realized that i only had to connect to the work like that the work is the conduit between me and the audience like a lot of times it's easy to think about it's like i gotta impress the audience and you get caught up and you know do you look cool and like am i looking svelte and like calm and and you, you freeze up you know and sort of performative yeah exactly and so i just like try to let go i'm trying to get out of the way of the work like the the, the pacing's already there. I got line breaks and periods and commas. Like, the pacing's already there. If I don't have pace, a good pacing when I read the poem, it's not because I'm failing at some kind of dramatic performance of it. It's that I'm not reading what's on the paper. You see what I'm saying? So, in that way, I try to let myself feel what the poem is actually doing and just kind of go towards that. And that's how I connect to the audience. That's my conduit and what keeps me from being, like, completely too terrified to do it. <laughs> What about when you have them, when you're, the poems are inside you? What are you seeing? Like, are you, because cause this time you were, you were closing your eyes. Were you seeing, like, what, were you seeing images or were you just in the, yeah. Or were yeah, you seeing so the those, grammar of something? Yeah, the, the poems now, this wasn't always true. Um, but re but now, like, when I read, I kind of do get flashes of, like, the textures of the poems. Um, like, they're, like, 
again, I kind of almost see what I saw when I was like writing. You know, you're writing, you kind of like have a sense of the visuals of it. But now, is when I read it, it's like it's very synchronous. Like I can feel the my brain processing on all the levels, like the sound of it, the meaning of it, and the visual of it, which is like um, as I'm getting closer to the work in my readings. And, but, and you can feel it, but I you're saying you can it see it through. too? Can yeah. you see it somehow? Yeah, is it's it... like it's like kind of like just like those mental pictures. Like the know? flashes of yeah. something. Yeah, the mind's eye kind of like, I get like glimpses of... But it could be like colors or... Yeah, yeah. That's awesome. <laughs> okay, we should take a short break and then we'll come back. Um, today on the program, Jamal May is here. I'm T. Hetzel. You've got Living Writers. We'll be back. And during the few moments that we have left, we want to talk right down to earth in a language that everybody here can easily understand. <laughs> got living writers um today on the program jamal may is here um and i'm so glad um 
Jamal, I feel like we're sort of putting folks in a time machine a little bit today, too. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like all these different eras. Yeah. Oh, I hope you don't mind. And genres. I love it. Because I'm implicating it's, you it's in like it. It's like my playlist. It's like, it's like, it's like listening to my Spotify. <laughs> well, see, that's that's the thing. It's when, you, when you've got um, interviews that are out there, like uh, yeah. like text interviews, people can read them and then yeah. start putting, like, it's trying and it's, to spread together. There's a lot of songs that I haven't heard in a while because like, cause I always have songs that I'm like zeroed in on at times. So any time you ask me, the next time I hear those songs, it's like new again. So I'm like, oh yeah, that track. I need to put that on the new playlist. Or, yeah. That's pretty cool. What are you listening to right now? Um, what's the, so where am I at right, right now? Um, I recently started listening to um, the most recent J. Cole album, which I think is really, really good. And Kendrick Lamar as well. Um, I'm also, I've been going back to um, like some of the, or like old stuff that like rock stuff like um Hendrix and, right. and Steely Dan. Um, no, no, seriously. Yeah, Steely yeah, I got I got like a bunch of I got most of Steely Dan's albums on vinyl. Uh, so I, Bragger. I, I was actually I was listening <laughs> to um, Black Cow this morning. <laughs> so, so that stuff's been having rotation, and I have different playlists. So I got like my I call it the Ignite playlist, where it's just like. The most like over the top, like just um, <laughs> like just bass and ignorance, like on the track. And, um, then you got the un, um, I'll keep it clean, the unf wittable playlist. Oh, okay. That's your track list when you gotta like you're feeling kind of down, you need like encouragement, you know. Then you got the artist motivation playlist, which is similar but a little different. You know, on the the unf wittable playlist, you're getting more like kind of like more egotistical stuff, like more like Kanye kind of stuff. Yeah. Then on the um the uh, artist motivation you get kind of the tracks that's more like yo yo you can do this like hanging there you know Kid yeah. Cudi's Heart of the Lion or oh, um, nice. yeah. L.E.S. Artist by Santiago like those kind of tracks do are... you have any Wolf Parade on yours I don't should I, I do... well I do sometimes like some some, some yeah yeah, but it's weird because sometimes different things make you um, want to go. Sometimes Arcade Fire could even, um, for me, be like a yeah. Let's go. And, and I don't depends. know why. Sometimes I can't understand half around. of the what they're right. saying. Yeah, sometimes but. stuff moves around because of that too. I'm like, actually, this should be on the. I feel like this is yeah. going right now. Like, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, okay, Jamal. We were also let's see. We were um, in the break. We were talking a little bit about um, things that maybe are at the the core um of a person of a or yeah. maybe as a poet uh yeah. you know um, yeah i was thinking about i've been thinking a lot about like kind of philosophical kind of core um something I've, i believe that i said a while ago and i and it's I, sometimes i just kind of say things and i'll kind of keep saying them in my head to see how they hold up and huh. press them against the the reality in front of me and one that kind of keeps coming back is um this notion that the poet's higher higher self is a philosopher and the philosopher's higher self is a poet um, when when philosopher kind of gets those those succinct like crispy quotes, you know, when they really get into the core of what they're trying to say, that feels poetic. You know, it's right. like that's the poetry part of it. And when a poet really gets into the core of what they're trying to say, when it, when that image hits or that metaphor just clicks, it feels like philosophy. It feels big. Yeah. And I meet a lot of writers where I realize sometimes the thing that people are missing is a core philosophy. Like they learn they'll learn all the technical skills and how to make a poem look like a poem, but they don't and this is where like a lot of times people don't know where to how to edit. Like cause one of the things you edit towards is the core idea. Like the what's at the hot spot and the deeper to the core you can go, the the um the clearer your edits are. And so when you're kind of stuck in that mode of just 
finishing poems on the surface so that they pass workshop muster. You're not getting into the deeper core of your philosophy. And to do that, you have to surprise yourself. You have to dig into your brain. And the way, um, you know. And dig, and dig. And dig. I, I always quote Ian Forster. He said, um, how do I know what I think until I see what I say? So you start, I start parsing out my philosophy from my own work, from what's happening and creative choices I'm making. And then my philosophy grows from that because you look at poems and say like, oh, I really think like that, you know? Um, the poem you mentioned, The Sky No Black With Birds, really kind of put me up against the wall against um, what I think about the death penalty and how much forgiveness. And the poem that started off with something angry to say became this poem about forgiveness. And I, and I, I feel like I grew from working on that that poem and it's because of what I'm editing towards is the core philosophy in the center of that poem now not there's not necessarily I mean there is a general kind of core philosophy that you can find in my work but every poem has its own world and that's how I get at dimensions and facets of it and um I take advantage of poetry's like like the, it's the format is so perfect for saying mul things that multiple things at one time and so I can so I can and my I think I'm realizing that my core philosophy is this questioning about the middle space and this kind of insistence on not necessarily balance but harmony um like how like things harmonize with each other and finding that core um like the sweet spot you know and that sweet spot from what i see is about movement and you have to have ebb and flow and so my um so in editing if something is like i know when something's didactic because i won't have that those features of that or is it flow. or cause when you say didactic is it like is it too heavy or is it something that also has work to do or is it yeah, philosophy or is it well like it depends on the tension because this is what I come down to is I stop thinking so much about right and wrong and more about cause and effect so I think it's always a question of intentionality and I teach from this perspective too this is how you run a workshop where you don't get caught up in everybody just going like well here's what I would do with the poem you know like right. here's like like I wanted this to happen like well that's not it's your not poem it's not your poem <laughs> You know, but if you think about that, every poem as a project, then you can have a conversation about a poem around the ideas like, okay, what is the poem trying to be? Yeah. What do we have here that's working towards that? What was what are more possibilities? What, In this what, poem's world. Exactly. Not what can we fix, but you know, what possibilities are available to the writer? I think that's a better conversation to have in a workshop. When you say edit, like that word, do you also like? Is it like shape? Is it because it almost feels from what how when you talk about it, it it almost feels like too too um too small or too precise of a word for mm. what you're talking about. Yeah, well... Or um, I don't know. Well, I mean... We, I've heard people kind of make, like, kind of distinctions between editing and revision. Um, oh, okay. Most recently, Tarfia... Like, I well, might I be guilty of that, actually. I, yeah. Uh, but, but, I mean, but, like, Tarfia was talking about this recently. I quote her a lot because she's like... I, have a, I live in a house with a brilliant poet, so I just take advantage of it. Um, <laughs> but she said that... Um, she said she's been rethinking, you know, the difference between editing and revision. So it's just for her frame, and she's starting to think of editing more like a thing you do after revision is taking place. Like, editing is more like detailing up the work and revision is really like you know I've heard people put a line between re and vision you know it's like it's a new you're re-looking at your vision and I think that's I think that can be really useful to think of it in terms of like okay there's a, a uh, uh, edit, and all these words are just words are arbitrary anyway which is just like they're like I think it's one of the things poetry does is remind us that the words are just signposts you know so whatever language is necessary for a person to think about it I think it can be helpful to think in terms of okay not like I finished the thing and how do I tweak it to, to perfection but you know like I finished a draft you know whatever the possibilities are in front of me and, and I think of editing now um, C.D.L. Young is the one that helped me kind of get into this frame of mind but um, was he there at Warren Wilson? He was at Warren Wilson. Okay. I had him as a professor, okay. and he basically put put me up on this concept of um, revision as 
uh, basically like drafting that's not writing. When people say I'm writing, they tend to mean I'm drafting. But now I think of writing as a broader process. And that includes revision. It's part of the writing process. It's not a thing I do later after I've written. It's always part of it. And so now I think of um, drafting as just collecting my materials together. And I'm always writing because I'm always collecting these bits and pieces. And then um, a way I phrased it recently was that it's when I sit down to draft, I'm basically just gathering all my like pebbles and marbles <laughs> and like goldfish on the table. And then and then once I have a draft, that's all my stuff on the table in some kind of rough shape. And then revision is where the real work starts happening. That's where I pull out the chisel and really start shaping the materials that I've collected. And and challenging like what you believe the it's, core. Exactly. You know, asking those, asking those questions, right? You know, and um, you know, say like like you said, line. It sounds good. You know, the better it sounds, the more I'm like, yo, what is that? What's what's realness to that? And really, for me, the only thing that's ever a hundred percent true, the only hundred percent true answer ever is um, something along the lines of like, kind of, or <laughs> sometimes, or really at the core, depends. Like everything is true depending on perspective and context. So I try to write the poems with that question, and I was I'm always pressing against myself. It's like because and if I'm really doing that work, I always look at how the poems can be flipped. Like if I can almost flip and do a negative version of the poem, and it still gets to a core emotional experience, then I know that those lines are really working. Well, I'm gonna try that. Jamal, will you come back and uh, have another conversation? Maybe when the next book is oh, out. Oh yeah, definitely. Because we have not even talked about like. Um, video poems or digital shorts like yeah. and this is and I do the, a lot of things <laughs> yeah and the the um uh, organic weapon arts like yeah, i feel like this series, is yeah. right and that's and those are part of the video yeah poems. and that's what right. i've been focusing a lot of attention on right now while i'm not teaching teaching this year i'm kind of looking at what our arts is going to be and kind of rethinking the future of it how big how big will i let it get because i was wanted to keep it really small but then like people like it so i'm <laughs> looking at how we can expand and what else we can do in terms of maybe even like arts education but also just in the terms of what art, things we make um tarfia's look working on the broadside angle right now we're looking at um eventually um, adding a broadside component and um and i'm getting enough to actually finally start shooting we had a bunch of equipment get stolen a couple years ago so it took a while to kind of rebuild the oh, arsenal yeah. and um and so this like i think the December, I'll be starting to shoot again um, with some poets that are coming into town. So, so maybe it's just as well that we'll talk about it yeah. in the future. We're then, and here, yeah, oh, that would be that would be brilliant. I'll and, be down. And, and you're going to be you're you're reading tomorrow and at the Zell Visiting Writers Series at Helmut Stern Auditorium, five p.m. Right. Or five ten Michigan time. What is yeah. five five ten? Right, get there right. five p.m. ish. <laughs> you might you better to get a seat. Yeah. Um, and so Jamal, thank you so much for talking with me today. Yo, on the thanks program. for having me. I really appreciate it. It's good to see you again. It's good to see you. Um, so everybody, tomorrow, um, Thursday uh, at the Detroit, uh, the Detroit. Sorry, Uma at Uma at our very own Uma, just across the way here from where the radio station is. Jamal May um, will be reading from Hum and also new poems. Yes. Two. So new poems also. So you guys will get a chance to hear the big book of exit strategies, poems from that collection as well. Um, thanks for listening, everyone. Many thanks to Jamal May for being here. I'm T. Hetzel. Until next time. Thank you.
Welcome to Wolverine Wednesday here in the Daily Sports Report. Uh, as always, I'm Zach Shaw. We're very excited. We have a good show going on tonight. Lots going on in the football, basketball, and hockey worlds. Uh, all three Michigan teams uh, going and contending for uh, either their early season prowess, some big non-conference victories, and then, of course, uh, Big Ten East title contention uh, for the football team. Uh, first, we'll start with hockey because we never start with hockey here, and Jeremy Parks is uh, always upset about it. Uh, and, and Jeremy, you watched Michigan uh, defeat Niagara. Niagara is not a, necessarily a good team, but it was still a good win for Michigan. What did you see from that win? Well, first off, there's a lot of things I get upset about on this show. Shoes. Um, second of all, I think Michigan in the first period definitely looked against a better opponent like they would have given up at least a goal or two still a lot of shaky play on the back end from the young defenseman as well as the veteran defenseman it was surprising on uh what was that friday night or saturday night i can't recall um still struggling to pinch back in or work too far out to the edges on defense allowing lackadaisical play letting pucks get in behind them niagara had i think the shot total through one period was 14 to 12 in favor of the wolverines that's a lot of opportunities for a team that was only putting up 1.6 games or 1.6 goals per game prior to this. Really, for these Wolverines, we know they can score. They've always been able to score. They've been an yep. offensive power for the last several seasons. The problem has always come on the back end, defense and in goal. And we'll, I think we'll get to the goalie situation in a moment you wanted to talk about. But um, still, just 